Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I sat down with Dr. Tom Balistrieri, an expert on the lore of indigenous people, to discuss life lore and death law and the relevance in our contemporary world. I learned a lot and enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. To our podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you could be here again. Mm -hmm. So today we wanted to talk about lore and um, your experience with learning about not only just the culture, but the in-depth roots of culture, beliefs, and, um, and, and then your interpretation of how that can impact us today and what we can learn from that. So if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about what mm -hmm. is lore. So um, back in 1990, when I was around 39 years old, I started to work with indigenous people. And that began here in the United States. And I would learn things from the elders and the medicine people but they were individual points. They would just be, ah, there's this point or this belief or this practice and this philosophy. Then in the year about 2001, I met an Aboriginal Australian elder by the name of Bobby McLeod. And Bobby agreed to live with me and to teach a class at WPI called Indigenous Wisdom and Modern Technology. What we knew is that at WPI, which is an engineering school in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I was a therapist at that time and taught psychology classes, was that we had to teach engineers more than just build a bridge because already we were seeing the destruction of the environment. So by bringing Bobby in, what he was able to do was say, when you build a bridge or when you build a car, whatever it might be, think about the impact on the environment, on the future. And how he couched it was in something called life lore. And what I discovered was everything that he was teaching me began to connect the dots of everything that these other elders had been teaching me from beginning in, like I said, 1990, now to 2001, and now to 2020, basically. And this life lore, is, the other side of the coin, so to speak, is dead law. And what Bobby was saying is, the world is practicing dead law. And we need to practice life lore or things aren't going to go well for the earth. The uh, indigenous people of Australia refer to the earth as the mother. And when you think about it, most people refer to the earth as mother earth, not as father earth. But 
in this feminine idea of fertility and generativity. So he taught life lore and dead law. So dead law, I mean, that sounds like dead law is what happens when life lore isn't practiced. Is that correct? You know, I, I think that's <clears throat> probably a good way to, to put it. When, when we act with greed, when we act with lust, when we hoard, when we act violently, when we're self-deprecating, when we're narcissistic, all of those things. What Bobby would say is, life lore begins with oneself. You have to take care of yourself. But in a culture where something like 60% of the people are overweight, 40 million people suffer from anxiety, 8% of children under 12 have attempted suicide. I mean, obviously, we're a culture who has forgotten how to take care of ourselves. And so this uh, climate crisis that we're in, whether you believe it's man-made or not, the last climate crisis was a long time ago, and we faced the sixth extinction. One million species will be wiped out by the year 2030 to 2050 unless we change our ways. The last extinction, the fifth extinction, was 65 million years ago. 65 million years ago. And right now, we're living in the sixth extinction. And that's being said by scientists around the world. Life lore is the way out of the extinction. Dead law will drive us deeper into the extinction and into this climate crisis. The uh, extinction, the sixth extinction that you're talking about, that's driven by climate change, by pollution, by human activities. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, I believe now we're up to 75 whales in the last three to six months have come ashore in California. Their bellies filled with plastic and they're dying of starvation because the food doesn't exist, the plastic exists, they're poisoning themselves. And so we're seeing the death of 70 plus whales. Was reading just this morning right whales, of which there are only 400 left, and 100 of them, I believe, are mating females. Um, they're finding more and more right whales dead being hit by ships and by their bellies filled with plastic you, you know it could go on but it's just depressing yeah. but yes it's that uh we're we're killing things at a high rate of speed because the only thing we care about is me myself and i in this moment here's what i want and i want it fast i want it now and I don't really care what happens to the garbage. Um, you know, we talk about throwing garbage away. Um, Butterfly Hill, the woman who lived in the tree for, I think it was two, almost two years, 
her line is, there is no way we're, we live in a closed system. I was just in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong used to take its garbage and ship it away. I think it was to China, and China is now saying, we're not taking your garbage anymore. So Hong Kong's going, where do we throw it away? There is no away. Right. And we need to really understand that. Every one of us needs to understand that. So, so when we look at the life lore versus dead law, life lore is a way of living. It's a system of beliefs. It's a system of understanding. Um, it's a, a, a history of, of knowledge that goes back thousands of years is I think how you framed it to me mm -hmm. and this is not true to just any one group of indigenous people this is something that has similarities between groups that have never interacted is that correct correct, From, correct right. so you right. first came into the world of, of learning about life lore through various elders and then the gentleman Bobby from Australia sort of brought everything together for you. Um, so what are some of the similarities that you see as you talk to people from different nations around the world or, or as you've learned of what they believe? Yeah. So for example, on the Rosebud Reservation, sage is used in ceremony. So they would say to us, uh, go pick sage. And you would see, um, let's say, a 20-foot by 20-foot area of sage. Now, I think the common non-life floor, in other words, the dead law way, would be, oh, let's pick all of that sage in the 20-foot by 20-foot area. But then what we would figure out pretty quickly is that that meant that there would be no more sage in that area. The life lore approach is you first of all stand there and you thank the sage for its life. Then you say to the sage, I'm going to be taking some of you. Thirdly, this is the really cool part, you're taught to look at that there's male and female plants, believe it or not, and that you only take some of the sage, making sure that you're probably taking more male plants than female plants, and then you move on to the next 20 foot by 20 foot section and take some of that and some of that. So when you're thinking in terms of life lore, what you know is next year, that 20 foot by 20 foot area of sage will once again produce sage for the people and so will that one and so will that one and that's the way they picked that sage from that place for hundreds of years and if you do it that way that sage will be there for hundreds of more years that's the, the way they think the act of, um, of communicating to the sage to thank it to um, mm -hmm. explain what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Is that an, an exercise for the human to basically iterate what they're doing for their own well-being? Or is there an, a belief that there's an actual communication with, in that case, sage or with a tree or, or when you're speaking to a rock? Mm -hmm. 
is, is there a belief that there's a, an actual communication with that entity? It's, it's another <clears throat> great question. And the answer is that the indigenous people don't believe that the sage is listening. They know that the sage is listening, and therefore they are speaking to a relative as real as you and me, saying, thank you for your life. Sorry we're taking some of you, but we need you. And, but we're not going to take all of you. Now, science, and there are scientific studies where they're finding that plants do respond to human beings, to emotion and all of that. won't bore you with the studies. People can find them online. Well, I remember that from years ago, people uh, proving that if you talk to a plant that it's yeah. going to do better. It's going to do better. Yeah. Um, if you pray with your food, you get 30% more nutrients out of it. So what they believe, but actually what they know is that these beings will respond. And they'll, they'll respond by treating you differently. That they will be stronger, they will be richer, they will treat the human being better. And you can live in harmony with nature, not we're above nature, we're better than nature, you're just a plant, you're just a feelingless animal, or whatever it might be. So it is the, um, uh, going back to quantum mechanics, it's entanglement, that everything is entangled, everything. And we need everything. But if human beings think we're better and or above, which too many people do, that's where we're entering the sixth extinction and the climate crisis. There is a um, very old Australian story that my elder Bobby McLeod taught me. And it was a warning story. This is what was interesting. It's called the rainbow story. But it used to be a warning story. Now it's an as-is story. The story was this. He said that we used to tell our young children that the rainbow is a complete circle that lives where the water and the sky and the land meet. And one day a group of people, and they're good people, they're not bad people, said, let's go to that place where the rainbow lives as a complete circle and walk out into the water so that we can touch the rainbow and smell the rainbow and listen to the rainbow. So they made their way to that place. They were about to step into the water and a guardian comes up over the rocks. And the guardian says, oh, 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 please don't step into the water because if you do, you will create ripples and those ripples will go out and destroy the bottom of the rainbow. So as a, a warning story, in other words, 30,000 or 20,000 years ago, the rainbow was still a complete circle. And so the children were like, ooh, we don't want to destroy the rainbow. How do we not destroy it? And the guardian said, let me teach you the ceremony of life, basically life lore. 
don't go into dead law, you'll kill the rainbow. And so they did. They learned life lore. But what happens now, you see, when Bobby told me this story, he said, so why the rainbow is only one half, why you only see one half of the rainbow, is that the people around the beach going, so what is this life lore stuff? And the guardian said, well, it's, it's how to live with nature, in nature, you are nature, how to love yourself, and this idea of ceremony of life stuff. And then the people said, well, who are you to teach us that? And the guardian said, well, I'm just a person who was taught it by a guardian. I practice it, and I've been allowed now to teach it to you. And the people said, well, how long is this going to take? And they're all looking at their wristwatches, you know, and the guardian says, well, you know, it takes as long as it takes. It might take some of you six months. It might take some of you a lifetime. But when you learn life lore, you'll be able to step into the water, not create any ripples, and the rainbow won't be hurt. And the guardian disappeared. And the people talked amongst themselves, and they said, ah, who cares what that guy's saying? We don't have time for this. Let's just step into the water really, really, really carefully, and let's go out and touch the rainbow, because that's what we want to do. We're free. We can do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. Because that's how people define freedom nowadays. And so they did. They stepped into the water really, really carefully. But no matter how carefully you step into water, it creates ripples. The ripples went out and destroyed the bottom of the rainbow. And that's why it's destroyed. Now Bobby said, so right now the rainbow's destroyed and people keep stepping into the water without learning life lore. And pretty soon the entire rainbow will be gone. Life will be gone. Now I've had that told to me by Inuit elders, Diné elders, Hopi elders, Lakota elders, Cherokee elders, um, elders in China, elders in India, elders in Africa. The entire indigenous world is saying, we've been predicting this. And now it's happening. You know, and people go, oh, come on. How can that be? It's all, the life world's always been here, you know. You know, it's uh, somebody had to live through this. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, it's us. We are the ones that have to enter this sixth extinction in this crisis. But we can do it intelligently and get through this. Or we can continue to believe in people like our president who pulls us out of the climate uh, Paris Accords, who wants to drill more, who really couldn't care about the future um, because it's about greed and lust and I want it now. And we're going to be in trouble if we live dead law. So we have this <clears> chance. We still have a chance. Um, but the indigenous people are saying, you, you killed us, and now you're killing the earth. So, hey, now you're the guardians of the life lore. You're the guardians. It's not appropriation, you understand? That's not appropriation. They have handed it to us saying, please, now you guys do something. You wanted to be in charge? You're in charge. Please, don't kill everything. So we have the wisdom. We have the knowledge. <clears throat> now what are we going to do with it? That's the, that's the question. So life lore is made up of many different 
Yes. Many different processes, philosophies, and like you said before, behaviors. It's, it's, it's beyond thinking. It's beyond feeling. They are actually behaviors that we can undertake that can change things and stop things even if you can begin to believe that everything is listening and everything cares. So a lot of this, a lot of your, I guess, um, messages goes back to the idea of think globally but act locally when you're talking about what we can do as individuals on a personal basis, on an individual basis, this starts first with an understanding. And what are some of the different components of life lore? So, so <clears throat> Nick, the acting locally, like you just said, brings it really home to oneself. Hmm. We talked about the last time that you and I spoke about the first uh, lore of initiation is don't speak poorly about yourself anymore. Everything is vibration. Everything is vibration. And all you have to do is look at what Einstein said, what Tesla said. They're, they're, they're saying everything is vibration. Everything is entangled. How I think, feel, and act sends out a vibration and everything feels it. 40 million people suffering from an anxiety disorder in just our country alone. Think of that vibration. Two million African slaves were starved on the way from Africa to the Caribbean or the United States and were thrown overboard. Think of that vibration that's in the ocean. This isn't new age stuff. This is quantum mechanics. This is indigenous knowing. You know when someone enters a room, you're going, oh, wow, that person's angry. You can tell by body language, but you can feel their vibration. Or someone who's really calm and gentle, like, wow, that looks like such a nice person. It's more than seeing it. We feel it. So if you're vibrating in an agitated manner, if you're vibrating in a way that says, I don't like me, I don't like the world, I don't like anything, screw that 20 foot by 20 foot area of sage, I'm going to pick it all, who cares? The sage is going to feel that vibration and never grow back there. It won't be there. You'll have picked it in your greedy fashion now. And, 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 and. So yes, it, ex it begins extremely locally. Expands out from there. You begin to treat things in the same way you treat yourself, the golden rule. So in my classes, I have all of my students make friends with a tree. They name the tree. They go talk to the tree. And of course, in the first week or two, they hate it. They're embarrassed. Mm, they don't want to. Partly because it's so different. It's just a tree, on and on and on. But by week three, pretty much everyone in the class is going, this is really pretty cool. I've named my tree, or I discovered the name of the tree. Um, there's garbage around my tree, so I pick up the garbage. 
I like now going and sitting with my tree. I introduce my friends to the tree. And then there's this thing called generalization. So when they notice the garbage around their tree, they look at the 10 trees nearby and go, how can people be like that? They find themselves picking up the garbage around those 10 trees. And their friends begin to say, so can I go meet that tree? And they actually do. They'll go sit with a tree without a class grade involved, and then they'll pick up garbage. And before you know it, for example, Institute Park next to WPI has all of these students sitting by trees and picking up garbage. The park is cleaner. The students feel safer in the park because there's so many of them sitting by the trees. <clears throat> the trees, according to the young people, help them to relieve their anxiety, listen to their problems. I've had men and women both tell me they've cried to the tree when their boyfriend or girlfriend dumped them or when a world event occurred. So they're sharing emotions with the tree. They're, they're breaking their disconnection. They're establishing relationship with nature. So you go, well, so what? The so what is, it used to be that indigenous peoples around the world lived this way. You didn't destroy masses of forest or destroy the earth because you were in relationship with it. You knew that your great-great-great-great-grandchild was going to exist someday, so I better not destroy this forest or this 20-foot by 20-foot area of sage or step into the water and destroy the rainbow because I want my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild to have the same forest, the same sage, and the same rainbow that I do. But in a world where it's, I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it because I'm an American or I'm a white male or whatever it might be, that's why we're in the sixth extinction in the crisis because nature's going Oh my goodness, you don't care. You're disconnected from us. We're disconnected from you. And you get a, an island of, of seaweed that's composed of 20 million pounds of slime this, from Africa to Florida moving towards us, suffocating everything in its wake. 600 square miles beneath the Mississippi River of dead water. I mean, we're suffocating ourselves. We're killing ourselves. And it's us doing it because we have forgotten how to be with nature. There, one, of, one of the lore is really simple. It's called the Great Conversation. The Great Conversation occurs when the sun rises, and all of us are aware of it. Because we get irritated when all of the birds start singing. We're like, why can't those birds shut up? Well, see, it's, it's that they're all conversing. And the thing is that people who drive in the morning and in the evening know that's when the deer come out. Like, uh-oh, the deer are going to start crossing the road. Oh, here come the raccoons and the skunks and everybody else. At that time of day, we believe that's when everything starts hunting. That's, that's the way we think. But around the world, it was called... The Great Conversation. And the thing is, human beings used to be part of the Great Conversation. It's when everything can understand each other. So 
So if you talk to, I, I would say, 99.9% .9 of indigenous tribes and say, do you have a morning song? They will say, yes. We have a song that we sing in the morning. Do you have an evening song? Yes. We have a song we sing in the evening. Do you have a song you sing to the stars? Yes. Do you have a song you sing to the moon? Ah, well, we have a song we sing to the full moon. There's a song we sing to the new moon uh, because they know when the new moon occurs. They know when the full moon occurs. Ask most people, is there a full moon or a new moon tonight? What constellations are overhead tonight? What planets are there tonight? And, and we don't know anymore. But it used to be, again, that humans would, would stand up at the same time, sing the morning song, greet the sun, pull in its energy, and they could understand what the birds were saying, what the animals were saying, and they moved with nature. Here's, a, here's an interesting story. See, and to us we say story and right away it's, oh, it's made up, but it's not. My Aboriginal elder told me that in Mother Australia, so Mother Australia to the people is a living, breathing being. And where his people were, I don't remember the specific organ anymore, but let's say it was the kidney. So his people were the kidney. And the next nation was the heart. And the next nation was the liver. And the next nation was the brain. And so when his people traveled, they would travel up an artery and they would stop. Let's say if they're the kidney people and they were going into the liver country, they would stop and wait till the liver country said, you can travel through the liver right now. Or can we travel into your kidney? And his people would say yes. The mother was that real to them that their people kept the kidney healthy and those people kept the liver healthy and those people kept the heart healthy. And when they traveled, they would make sure that they were traveling in a clean fashion, if you will, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, so that they didn't give a disease to another part of the mother. Can you even imagine thinking that way? Imagine if we thought that way. But instead, instead, this, this is the dead law. We want to build a wall to keep those southern people out of us northerner type people, when in reality, could it be, could it be that they were protecting the kidney or the liver, and that by coming here, they're bringing some wisdom that we, maybe the heart people or the lung people, need to know. Now, the Amazon is called the lung of the Mother Earth. I mean, it's the major breathing source. Sure. What if, what, what if, what if? But instead, think of the dead law of it. No, not only are, 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 do we not believe and ask permissions anymore, we're going to build a wall to keep you out. See, that's the evil of it. That's the, so, so Bobby was saying dead law goes beyond human beings' dead law. It becomes something greater, be it good or bad, that's saying we're going to wipe you out. So if enough people begin to believe someone like a spiritless leader 
who's a zombie, if they start to believe that, that he's right, he's right, keep them out, shadow's winning, hatred is winning, violence is winning, and the mother is dying because we don't have the wisdom of those people down there. You talked briefly, you mentioned um, disconnection, and I know that that's one of the categories, the lore of disconnection. Mm -hmm. But what is the attraction of dead law? Why do people <laughs> gravitate to dead law? That's a great, your questions are, are fantastic. Because, because who doesn't want more and want it now? It, it's about addiction. It's about adrenaline rush. It's about, wow, I can eat that whole pizza. I can have five drinks and get so high. I can have and have and have and I don't see tomorrow. I don't see my grandkid or my grandkid. So the world's always been here. It'll always be here. You new age people, you know, whatever it might be. So it's greed, lust. That's the blinder that shadow puts over our eyes. Violence, all of that, all of that is just, I want it and I want it now because it's about me. Where it would be hard, it would be hard to not eat everything, to not use everything, to save for the future instead of spending it now, instead of having it now, instead of abusing it now. But the draw is the adrenaline rush. The draw is the ego. The draw is the narcissism. So when you have leaders that are embodying that, 47% um, of people now support our president. And the reason is the economy. What they're saying is, he's making me more money. Yeah, but what death is occurring as you're making more money? Who's dying? This is like this because that is like that. Someone is paying for it on the other end. Well, we don't care about them because we don't see them. You know, the three monkeys. If I don't see it, if I don't hear it, if I don't speak it, it doesn't exist. That's the insanity of dead law. That was the warning of all of my elders. That's the insanity of dead law. I watched an interesting documentary recently that uh, talked about the development of the prefrontal cortex and that it's the most human component of the brain. And it talked about um, <clears throat> uh, the, professor, the great professor, I wish I could remember his name, but he was talking about uh, the um, when, when a person is a child, of course, it's underdeveloped, and as a person ages it deteriorates, but that middle ground where you're about 25, he says for about for about 30 minutes, you have this really well-developed <laughs> prefrontal cortex. His words, not mine. And, uh, and then, it, you know, the deterioration begins. But, but to practice dead law, in a way, is to succumb to your uh, lesser um, your lesser being, to, to eliminate those, those that desire to do the right thing, to do things because it's uh, proper and uh, to eliminate that most human part of the brain. If you take away the prefrontal cortex, he talked about uh, a Vermonter. I guess if, uh, uh, Gage was the last name. My wife will be uh, uh, upset that I don't remember the first name. But a Vermonter who had a railroad spike driven through his head by an explosion, removed his prefrontal cortex, but he survived the injury. And that he went from being this caring, compassionate person to being a person driven solely by lust and desire. He became a brawler. Uh, a sexual predator, and uh, mm -hmm. eventually, uh, I guess you know, perished, and they studied his brain and, and such. But 
the but first you, lobotomy. Yeah, the first. Yeah, <laughs> but when you remove that prefrontal cortex, the the, the human being uh, is still a human by account of action and and looks like a person. You mm. can speak, can act, but you take out all of that human uh, discernment, right? Yes. And compassion and and uh, the ability to uh, to empathize and to to regulate your own behavior for the good or the better. Mm. Uh, you know, for someone else's well-being. When you look at people who are making decisions that have family and grandchildren or people that they care about in the future, and yet they're ignoring all of that, uh, it's hard to understand. You know, when you take somebody, you're talking about the president, you take somebody like Trump and you say, okay, this guy has children and he has grandchildren. He has young children. Uh, his youngest is a teenager. You know, how can you continue to make decisions that are obviously going to exploit the resources and destroy the the air, destroy um, the future potential of the earth to sustain life for your own kids who are young, who are going to see this. In, in his youngest child's lifetime, he will see dramatic change in the earth. And there are things that we could be doing today to stop it. Yet, we're going full speed ahead, dropping out of the Paris Climate Accords, but much worse than that. The actions that we're taking uh, are uh, very detrimental to our own well-being and our own future hard, hard, it's hard to combat that yeah, yeah. you know I mean you, and, and and he's got this huge following of people that are ignoring their better judgment yeah and pushing that aside and saying this is you know this is the direction we're going to go for the immediate reward um, yeah. acting on an individual basis you know uh, how, how does life lore empower us to survive this what I would say is that you have to learn life floor from the time you're very young so that you have to embody it it isn't just a it isn't something that you do it's something that you really believe it's something that you come to know so in your example my guess is that that he never saw Difficulty. He never saw hard times. I'm not sure he truly knows what love is, what relationship is. And then his small circle is, I believe, is really a white circle. And so my white son, he'll, he'll have it because I have it. And unfortunately, it's probably true the rich will survive. I don't know if you saw on the news, for example, Chennai, India is, I think it's got 10 million people. And Chennai ran out of water, basically. It's run out of water. Now the rich people have gigantic tanks of water on the roofs of their apartments and trains bring in water. But the poor people don't have water and they're looking up at the rich people's gigantic barrels of water that they do not share on the roofs of their houses. So what's going to happen? Either there'll be a mass migration of 9.9 million people to the next town and the filthy rich will continue to get their water, or the poor people will attack the rich people. But probably it's not going to start raining enough again to to feed uh, 10 million people. Now, 
200 years ago, if people were taught life lore or practiced life lore and continued to practice it, they would begin to see, oh, we can't continue to wipe out the forest here or to use up that much water or to create this many people or whatever the life lore told them in terms of homeostasis. How do we keep this in balance? But they also lived in a world of, I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. But now they face the gigantic tragedy. So it comes down to practicing behaving the life lore and beginning to practice it now that we're all going to have to use less, do less, think creatively, and reestablish relationship with nature and work with nature instead of thinking that we can control or manage nature. Fires are saying, really, you think you can control me? And earthquakes and on and on and on. Nature is now trying to put things back in balance. And human beings are in the way. Nature isn't evil. Nature isn't going, you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. Nature is just going, we're out of balance. And so happens human beings are the virus. And we just got to get smart and practice these these things starting, you know, 100 years ago. But starting today, we have really got to think and act differently. So it's possible to still maintain a high quality of life and to at least improve on our uh, relationship with nature. Well, the, the definition of high quality of life... Trump has spent $108 million on golf in the past two and a half years. So yes, his quality of life is very high, but how could that $108 million been used to help the climate or to invent some new technology? So again, it's I think all of us are going to have to define what does, what does high quality of life mean? Um, driving less, driving, using trains or buses and less electricity. And do we really need a straw? I mean, really, do you need a straw? Straws are one of the biggest producers of garbage. Quit using straws. If places handed out metal straws to everybody and said, bring your metal straw back when you come. So leaders need to start to to take the lead and, and say to people, like if every Dunkin' Donut, for example, were to say, we don't have styrofoam or even paper cups anymore. Bring a cup. You bring your own cup. And, and somehow we'll give you 10% more coffee. I don't know. But, but if it just became the new practice, if it became the practice, because right now people go, oh, what if I forget my cup? Well. If you aren't going to get coffee unless you bring your cup, you start to bring your cup. It's just changing behaviors. Stop using styrofoam. Stop using plastic. Start thinking differently, acting differently, utilizing things differently. And if everybody does it, things will change. We can lower the carbon footprint. We can decrease the gyres of plastic in the ocean twice the size the state of Texas 
Can you imagine walking across the ocean on plastic for two times the state of Texas? How do you, how do you even imagine that? It's frightening. It's frightening. You used the 108 million to get rid of the gyres of plastic, except Butterfly Hill told us, well, there's no way, so where do you put that plastic? I mean, that's but the insanity. For you now, you've referenced uh, Trump and, and some people would take this as a political statement, but mm -hmm. you haven't always been somebody who's been deeply interested in politics. No, no, it's This not. is something that's fairly recent for you. Yeah, it's not, it's not politics. I can't say I fully appreciated going to war with Iraq and all of that, but right. that's politics and that's choice. But, but when you're denying climate change, when, when not only denying it, when you're working against science, when when things, people are dying, the, uh, like we talked about the last time, 45 years is the average lifespan of an indigenous person. Really? So then why don't we take your 108 million and help indigenous people somehow? Instead of building this wall, why don't we think through of how can we work with people so that, because migrations are going to be what's happening. Everybody's going to come towards the middle as things get hotter and hotter and more and more flooded and I mean we have to really begin thinking about seven generations not how are we gonna build a wall around our country and be the only one that's living and I guess that's what I'm trying to to make sure that we communicate is that you're not here to talk about Trump Trump just happens to embody a lot of these yes which yeah. what you're really talking about is is the seven generation outlook and that yeah, Trump embodies a lot of these issues and, and problems and, and the way that we're living. Um, it's, it's a great way to illustrate. It's, it's in, so that, all in one individual. Right. Well, one <laughs> but, of the lores is called mirror lore. And what happens is that, that mirrors are held up, and then you can look at that mirror and go, oh, my goodness, we got to change the reflection in the mirror. I don't, I don't think Trump is a bad man, let's say. I think he's acting badly because no one ever talked taught him how to act appropriately but there's a huge following and so yeah and that's that's the problem and all of these people are now are getting sort of this uh permission to 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 act badly sure and um uh i don't know on this other uh i was just learning about um oh my gosh uh, i don't want to misquote but uh that we, we tend to empathize more with people of the same skin color okay mm -hmm. so maybe that's ingrained in us you know not just not just white folks, but folks of all different backgrounds and colors and, and such. So if that's true, and that's part of our brain chemistry, then not empathizing as much with people of a different skin color is something that we need to be aware of, and then maybe we can become better people by it. But when we give ourselves permission to just say, oh, well, I'm only going to care about people then that are the same color as me because my brain tells me to, yeah. that's a bad thing. And I think that's what's happened in the current political climate is that we're giving permission to people to say, oh, you're you know, darker skin color, whatever country you're from down south, we're just going to call you a Mexican, and it doesn't matter, and uh, we don't want you here, and, and so on. And, and I think that that permissive... Um, climate that we're in right now, politically and culturally, which says, yeah, it's okay to hate. It's okay to, to march mm -hmm. on Charlottesville. And we have good people on both sides. That mentality is what's wrong. And that's giving into uh, the, the evil side of things, the shadow. Um, yeah, the dead and, law. And, that's what, and the dead law. And that's yeah. what needs to change. And, 
and through understanding and through through elevating ourselves a little bit on an individual basis and understanding going back to our roots a little bit about you know doing the right thing not doing the easy thing but doing the right thing people are accustomed to drinking out of a straw so why not continue well because doing the right thing would mean that we're not going to do that because we're killing marine life we're polluting the oceans so when we educate people on that a lot of people make that choice and and we're seeing it you know there are a lot of people that come into our business which is a restaurant and are really happy that we don't have straws and then you get those folks that come in and they're angry they're mm -hmm. angry that we didn't bring a straw we've had people get up and leave because we didn't bring a straw with their beverage yeah when we're happy to grab one for them if they're going to ask. It happens to be a compostable straw, but we don't even have to tell them that. It's going to get upset. <laughs> but, but they're not allowing themselves to do the right thing. In fact, they're angry that they're being asked to even consider it. Yeah. And that's where I think we can't change everyone. We can't hit everybody in, effectively with information and have them react in a good way. But there's a lot, there's a huge number of people out there who do want to do the right thing. Yeah. And that's what we see on a daily basis. And, and I think that's where understanding what you want to tell us more about can really help a lot of folks. Yes, you know, we got rid of cigarettes, I think, in the 1970s. Nobody would have believed that. But we did, because even though there are still people who are angry about it, the majority of people are like, thank God there aren't cigarettes in classrooms, airplanes, and restaurants. And I think the same will happen with straws and plastic especially once people know, hey, you have microplastics in your bloodstream because microplastics are in the water. We don't want to kill you, so we're not giving you a straw. Right. You know, it, it's, it's going to be education and common sense. And eventually, hopefully, people understand that, that this is living means you're living with everything, not above whales, not above water but with everything, and there really can be harmony. There can be, it's truly possible. Indigenous people lived for anywhere between 30,000 and 70,000 years. The past 250 years, things have really gone bad, and it's because life lore was, was really dumped, so. And the Industrial Revolution yeah. empowered us to take our small contained atmosphere and really change it yeah very quickly yeah we forgot about everything else that just became about us and of course that's problematic so when you talk to people about life lore um, what are some of the different components of it we've talked about uh, we just touched on the lore of disassociation yeah so um, so the idea again is is to connect people first with themselves then with one other thing, be it a tree or plants or whatever it might be, and to understand that they are sacred and that everything is sacred. What does sacred mean? Again, worthy of respect, worthy of nonviolence, worthy of awe, worthy of love. Suicide is the second biggest killer of young people in our country, the first being car accidents. But if suicide, the, the statement is, I'm not worthy of nonviolence, I'm not worthy of love. So if we can begin to preventively work with young people and teach them to care for themselves, to love themselves, 
that they are sacred, that other people are sacred, that trees are sacred, that water is sacred. Um, things will change because then you're establishing relationship and you don't want to harm something. You don't want to just take it. You're willing to make sacrifice so that other things can live, the old liberty and justice for all, not just for the few of us, but for everybody. So if you start to see the earth as this living, breathing being, then something changes. You do begin to become part of the great conversation, to really listen to what nature is asking, what nature needs, what do your fellow human beings need to stay well, what does seven generations going forward, what are, what are they going to have, what do we need to sacrifice now so that they too can have a car, they too can have heat or light versus us using up everything now and then they do live in a dystopic world. So the, the practice of, of life lore now, that everything is interconnected, everything is entangled, the lore of vibration, that everything does vibrate. What kind of vibration do we want to emanate? What kind of vibration do we want nature to emanate? Right now, nature is vibrating very differently. My guess is that science could prove that to us, that the vibration of nature has changed. Something has really changed because now it's, in, to anthropomorphize it, it's panicked, it's frightened, it's dying. Anything that's dying unnecessarily, if you're being strangled and suffocated, you're going to kick and scream. If you believe what the indigenous peoples believe, the mother's dying, then we want to resuscitate her. We don't want her to die. If she dies, we die. Makes sense. So we change our vibration. We change back her vibration. We begin to act and live differently. It's going to make all the difference in the world. We also, in life lore, is thinking back on your elders, the people that have passed away. And how do they think? How do they feel? What have they taught? So to remember, to remember them, there are cultures who believe it's as important to remember those that have passed as well as those that are coming, that, that there's a vibration there as well, respecting your father who has passed or your grandfather or remembering relatives from the past, um, Day of the Dead once a year, bringing them back and honoring them and respecting them. There's belief in many cultures that you can even heal things in the past that impact the present. There's some, again, scientific proofs of that. <clears throat> so this life lore extends beyond uh, probably pretty much what the modern culture would ever believe, but in time, and again, I've proven it by working with young people whose lives have changed as they practice life lore and they're finding it changes everything with their parents, girlfriends and boyfriends, their relationship with nature, that it just changes the vibration around them, the, the way they treat themselves, the way they treat others, therefore how they are treated. So, 
And the basics for somebody that's interested in in practicing um, life floor or a more symbiotic relationship with the world around them would be to respect yourself yeah. and to connect with others, to connect with nature. And what else? What else would we touch on? There are. There are hundreds, actually, yeah. of life lore. Um, Just looking. It's so much of it is the daily practice of mindfulness, of awareness, of respect, of care, of compassion. Um, when, when I was young, my grandpa used to put his hand on my head whenever I left, and he would sing. And again, I didn't understand that, but I thought it was pretty cool. And what I learned later was that he was giving me his blessing. So imagine if, if that became a practice that everybody practiced, the lore of blessing. So if I thought that not narcissistically, but if I thought I was sacred enough that if, if I see you, if I see that you're sad or having a rough day, and I would just say, Nick, let me give you my blessing. And 10 other people saw that you were sad or feeling down and said, let me give you my blessing. You would feel different. And those people would feel great that they offered you a blessing. And you wouldn't be, who are you to give me your blessing? I don't want your blessing. But again, if it was something that was culturally believed. So when my grandfather did it, that was just something Sicilians did. To offer someone a blessing instead of, all right, so we're cut off in a car. And right away, we swear at that person and we scream at them. What if? We said to ourselves, wow, I wonder if that person's wife in the back seat is pregnant and she's running to the hospital. I wonder if he's bleeding to death in his car and he needs to get to the hospital. I wonder if he's late for work and is just rushing. So please let him get there safely. Imagine that vibration. If as you're being cut off by a car, you have the life lore of please help that person instead of the dead law of screw him, I'm going to try to cut him off now and then 10 other people doing that before you know people are shooting at each other. That's a simple example of dead law versus life lore. How you approach your day, how you approach situations, how you approach everything beginning with waking up with the birds and the animals and greeting the sun and saying, I please help me to have a good day today. And I hope all of you out there have a good day today. It would be a state of being, an entirely different way of moving and walking through the world. Is life floor, uh, does it work in tandem with Christianity or is it opposed? My grandfather was a Catholic. I think it's very much in tandem. Anything Jesus ever said was, you know, um, I'm in you when you are in me and turn the other cheek and let's try kindness. And 
what do we do to him? You know, that's the that's the bad part. <laughs> but 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 it really you know, it's so much the golden rule. It's just so simple. It's it really is about walking in beauty. That's how the Dene call it. They don't call it life lore. They refer to it as walking in beauty, walking the beauty way. In Lakota, it's walking the red road, walking in balance, walking towards the people, towards the spirit, remembering those that are coming, those that have been, to walk gently, to walk kindly, to walk with humility, to walk with compassion, to walk with courage. It's all very interesting. It's a, an entirely different way of living life. Um, I've done some study of, of what we would call dog soldiers. Uh, people have this belief that the dog soldiers were the biggest and the baddest. They were, they were the green beret of the prairie people, let's say. But when you talk to a lot of these very old, old elders, what they'll say is, to be a dog soldier meant that you fed the poor, that you helped the elderly, that you helped everybody move. When you hunted, you made sure that, that the elders and the sick and the children ate first, and then you ate. And then if you were attacked by the enemy, there's one particular group, they would tether themselves to their spear, and they would jam their spear into the ground. And what they basically would say is, I stand here. Now, I'm not going to attack you, but I'm not going to run. So I'm standing here. Now, if you want to come through me to hurt my people, I'm going to fight you. But look, I'm standing here. Why don't you just go away? Go away. It's a, to me, again, it's a really different way of even thinking about war. It's like, I don't, I know how to be a warrior, they would say, but I don't want to be that because I'm really here to help the old people and the sick and to go hunting and feed the people. But if, if you want to harm me, boom, I'm not running. So here we go. So the modern interpretation would be your standard ground laws. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's the dead law. We can take yeah. anything and turn it to dead law. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas theirs was life, Lord. I don't want to die. You probably don't want to die. I don't want my family to die, So, but I'm not going to run from you. But here I stand. It's just so different. It's life. It's about life. Any warrior wants to, except for there's about 5% that don't really care. But most warriors want to live. They're skilled at what they do because they want to live, Sure. not die. I um, learned something. You had me, uh, you recommended a documentary that I should watch, and, and we'll put that on the um, uh, when, when we list this as YouTube, we'll put that under underneath in the comments. But what was the name of the documentary? So the documentary is called Yaquana, Y-A-K-A-O-N-A. And it was a meeting of indigenous peoples in 1992 in Brazil at the same time, at Rio de Janeiro, at the same time that the UN was having their first environmental gathering. But they didn't invite any indigenous people. So the indigenous people, and I think there were something like 600 different nations, said, all right, you didn't invite us, and we don't have a voice. Could we have a representative of the 600 nations speak? And they said, we'll give you 10 minutes. So the indigenous people picked a person by the name of Marcos Terena. And he's from Brazil. And so Marcos Terena 
began talking, and they actually gave him 20 minutes, oh my God. But in his presentation, pretty much what he said was, and what the film Yaquana shows is, we're destroying the Earth at a high rate of speed. And Marcos Terena was saying, we have the technology to stop this. And we will share everything that we know. We will share our technology with you. Do you want it? And then they pan the United Nations people and they're all sleeping and going to sleep. Uh, and when you say technology, of course, most people are form. thinking, right, most people yeah. are thinking you know, the latest phone or... Right, right. Yeah. And by technology, he meant we have life floor and we know that, that, that by teaching you initiation, by teaching you how to live a daily life, how to walk on this earth, that it doesn't have to go badly. Um, there's a, a book on the sixth extinction that's fascinating, that's tied into Yaquana. The scientists in the 1980s knew what was coming and how fast it was coming, this extinction and the crisis. But they, but they knew Americans would be unhappy if they made it too strong. So they decided not to tell Americans everything, and they couched it in hope. They were like, things are going to go bad, but there's great hope that it's going to be okay. This book written in 2019 said that was a mistake because now these same scientists who talked about this in the 1980s are saying, and now we're telling you be afraid yeah. to act out of fear because you're like that young Swedish girl talks about Thurberg. She says, uh, act as if your house is on fire because it is. And that's what the scientists are saying is our houses on fire. So this film Yaquana shows what's happening in different parts of the world and what indigenous people are saying we can do. Again, you'll see Bobby McLeod, my elder, and I met Marcos Terena, and a number of these elders, um, many of whom have passed away now, but um, who, are, who are still fighting that, that life lore be brought back and that we stop this dead law in its tracks. There was an interesting little um, part of the introduction to that documentary that caught my attention. I've always felt odd referring to people as Indians mm -hmm. uh, who are indigenous people. And then uh, the John Marcus comes up and he refers to himself immediately as an Indian. We, the Indians of the world. Yeah. yeah. And then it talks about why that term yeah, is yeah. used. Yeah, so Indios of... Indios. Um, and tied to God. It's just, we are Dios. We're... We're, we're tied to, to God. We, we have that responsibility. God is there, but God is in here. And the indigenous people always felt like they had a responsibility to act in a God-like fashion because God is also in every tree and in every rock and in every mountain and in the sun. So again, if you see everything as a living, breathing being, you act differently towards it than if it's just an object for us to use, abuse, and throw into the ocean, or over the edge, or wherever we throw it, because that's what we do. Throw it away. We throw it away. <clears throat> and the idea that you know, that Columbus thought he was in India was probably 
incorrect that in, in <laughs> Dios is, is really what he meant is what the idea yes, that, yeah, they, yeah. that they try to share is. There's another thing that uh, comes up a lot lately um, that I've, I've heard, I don't know, more and more recently that there's an idea that if you start your day by showing appreciation mm-hmm. for things or if you show appreciation to someone that it benefits you as well and that uh, it's going to help to enhance your own brain chemistry, but, but make you feel better. And I think a lot of this, um, a lot of, uh, when I'm looking at just the introductory to lore that you shared with me talks about, or, or, you know, leans towards showing appreciation to, Mm -hmm. to, to things and that that benefits us. Yeah. There's a lot of the lore interconnects. So the lore of gratitude saying, thank you in many cultures, they have a thank you ceremony. So um, we've turned a thank you ceremony into paying a bill or just saying thank you, but they actually do a ceremony because they believe spirit is as much a part of everything as is something tangible or physical. It also ties into the lore of exchange, that, that you're exchanging stuff, but you're also exchanging vibration. Now, this is where Tesla and um, uh, Einstein, and Einstein called it spooky. He, he just, he didn't even have an understanding of it, but that molecularly, once we touch somebody or are in the same room with somebody, we are molecularly tied to them. Um, someone like Rupert Sheldrake took it further in terms of morphic resonance. I think the last time I spoke about the bluebirds and the cream, how during uh, 1930s, I believe it was, that uh, milk jugs had a paper tab on them and they would be placed out of someone outside of someone's home. And the bluebirds were starving just like a lot of other people were. So they figured out how to pull the tab off of the milk bottle and, and drink the cream at the top. Um, so this was reported in a newspaper that some bluebirds figured out how to pull the top off. A couple of days later, it was reported in nearby cities that hundreds, if not thousands, of bluebirds had pulled the tops off. And I believe it was within a week that it was reported all over Finland and Sweden and England that bluebirds were pulling the tops off. Now, it couldn't be just learned behavior, but that it was morphic resonance that there is this ability to contact through something other than our, than our mind can capture, but just through vibration. Sometimes it's called the hundredth monkey. That there's some number, there is some number where everybody gets it. When you think of everybody was smoking, everybody was smoking, and it really was almost like, and one day, Cigarettes disappeared. I don't know if anybody, can, you know, when you, anybody that was around for smoking, it really happened that fast. And what, what I believe people in quantum mechanics at some level would say is there was some tipping point. That there was some point where everything changed physically, spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, and people said enough is enough of that. So the lore, one of the life lore is tipping point, but so is the dead law tipping point. Now, we're approaching a tipping point with 
are we going to be able to get out of the sixth extinction and climate crisis? The number that you get is between 20 and 30 and 2050 if we haven't changed a lot of stuff. Dystopia is on the way. The other tipping point then can go the other direction, depending upon how we have this exchange with nature and with each other. Are we going to yell at people when we're cut off, metaphorically? Are we going to step into the water and let the ripples go out and destroy the rainbow? Or are we going to take a breath when somebody cuts us off and actually let them be safe? Please let them get to their destination safely. And then everybody around you isn't going to get all wacky as you get wacky trying to cut them off and then they're trying to cut you off. We can change things. Enough people think this way, act this way. There'll be a tipping point, an exchange, um, morphic resonance. Things can, can really change according to life lore. So, and that's where it all comes back to the idea of, um, you know, what can we do today to, to spread the knowledge that we can change, first of all, that there really is a problem. I mean, a lot of people know that. There's a big chunk of people that yeah. know that, but there's a big chunk that are in denial. Yes. There is a problem. There is a solution. Because I think a big part of it also is people are uh, just on a large scale throwing their hands up and said, there's nothing that I can do. Mm-hmm. And then there is a solution this is part of the solution, and now this is how we educate people yeah. about that solution. Yeah. What do you think that, what do you talk to your students about as far as how they can move forward? Now, you're, you're educating mostly college-age kids, right? Yeah, so I, I see so what I think is that I can still influence their thinking and behaving. Mm-hmm. There comes a point where I think it becomes harder, everything gets so ingrained. But... So the, fir- the first thing I try to do, Nick, is I try to say, you're powerful. And then they roll their eyes. And I said, look, any one of you could go out right now, buy a gun or a knife, and shoot or stab <coughs> one to 20 people in this room. That's how powerful you are. Is that true or not? And they all agree, okay, so, yeah, we have the power over life and death, <laughs> especially your own life and other people. And then you can expand that out to trees and grass and birds and everything else. So once you know how powerful you are, then you incorporate the idea that you're sacred, the idea that you vibrate, the idea that you're one of um, billions and billions of things that exist on this earth, and that what you do is important, that you can cut somebody off in your car or not, that you can walk against the walk light or not, that you can go into a grocery store and create a ruckus or not, that you can sit in this class and study and take the test, or you can cheat. On Every second we have a choice. Am I going to act according to dead law or life law? With almost everything we do, you know, it's I'm at that point where I don't accept a straw. Well, like, so I go, well, that's one straw. But if I have a Coke every day, that's 365 straws times the 70 years I've been on the planet. Well, not only that, the reason that we made a change in our business wasn't from watching the news. It was because people brought it to our attention. Yeah. 
And, and it does make a difference. So if tens of thousands of people are now saying, now I think it's either Singapore, I can't remember, or Indonesia, are saying we're not going to have one-use plastics even allowed. There's no plastic bags. There's no... So... Well, California is leaning in that direction. I yeah, guess. yeah. So, I mean, you can change things. If I carry a collapsible straw around and if I carry a metal uh, spoon and fork and don't take plastic, I can change the gyres of plastic in the ocean. And I can get all of my friends to do that. That's great. And then spiritually, the same thing. If I offer gratitude, if I walk in a more peaceful manner, if I take a breath instead of just the first impulse being to yell at someone or to, to scream at someone or to talk badly about someone, what does that do? What does that do? So again, it's that, that phrase from Dag Hammarskjöld, with every thought, with every word, with every action, Ask yourself, are you creating or are you destroying? And too many times in my life, and I'm sure in all of our lives, if we had just shut our mouth, if we had thought about that, we would have destroyed less and created more. But the more we can try to live by that lore, of the lore of creation versus the lore of destruction, what a different world that would be. What a different world that would be. How much, how much food do we waste? 30%, something like that? Yeah, it's something like that. So it's some enormous number. Um, so like at colleges now, they don't have trays anymore. They have a dish, and you go up, and you go, I want two pieces of chicken, and they go, no, you're getting one. If you want a second one, you have to come back up. And what they're finding is they don't come back up, but their eyes are, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat nine of these. You know, like the football players, oh, you're not. No, you get one and then come back up for your second one. What if we all, what if all restaurants, everything started to think that way? Of you can have more, but let's start with this. Let's start with this. You know, it just is going to take us thinking about are we creating something? How much are we destroying? How much are we throwing away versus how much are, are we keeping? So again, um, the Julia Butterfly Hill of there's no away anymore. There, there never was, but there's no away. There's, there's only this. And Life Floor realizes that it's in this moment. I have this moment that I can do something that will impact seven generations. That's, that's the power we have. What I do will impact seven generations. We were talking about um, the uh, nuclear problem in Russia. You know, think if they had thought about the possible impact of the destruction of that nuclear plant. How could they have not lied to people? What could they have done to let people know the truth of the matter? To even have Geiger counters that read appropriate number right. of Rankins. I mean, you know, it's just... Crazy. We're just crazy. Yeah, we were talking about the HBO special Chernobyl and uh, yeah. how they highlight that really a lot of it just came down to uh, what we could define on an individual basis as ego. They didn't want to admit that they had a problem. Yeah. And it's as a result, uh, the official death toll still stands at 27 when in actuality it's probably in the hundreds of thousands of people that were actually affected by the radiation release. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, looking at that, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, is there... We are arguably, and easily, I guess, argued, the most intelligent life form on the planet. 
yet we're the only one that I know of that has to rationalize doing the right thing. Is there any other species that's creating, you know, mass extinction <laughs> that you're aware of? I'm not. <laughs> no, that's the gift that we were given was the gift of choice and discernment by having this big brain. Yeah. Well, going but, back to your idea that any one of you can go out and buy a knife or a gun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're all leaning towards the, uh, the gun on a global scale. Yeah. What are we going to do with this brain right. and our hearts and our souls and, and everything else? But uh, the narcissism and the greed and the lack of sacred, all of the dead law, that's the problem. Yeah. You're, um, you, you define, I guess, probably 40 different lore? Like I said, you know, there actually are hundreds. The, I think w whenever I do speeches, mm -hmm. I try to present the... 10 or so that we just talked about because people can grasp those and they find those easy to to grasp that right. you vibrate and that that we're connected and that we can be more mindful we can act more kindly yes there's this law of exchange the idea of personal blessing um that that's easy for people to buy into law of the elder that to respect wisdom to respect elders but the well, Lord can get pretty esoteric. But when you, yeah. when you talk about respecting wisdom, mm -hmm. I mean, once again, that's something, and not just to point out all the negatives, that's something that's really uh, devoid in our society today. Is there a respect for wisdom? Because science, just on a, once again, I'm looking, I guess, at a political scale, but it's, but it's, large, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than politics. Mm -hmm. When science tells us as a society that we need to change, then we start discrediting the scientists. We start chipping away at the idea of their knowledge or wisdom. Yeah, when it gets, when anything gets in the way of what we're taught, which is I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do yeah. it, that's what it's bumping up against. And that's what initiation practices in other cultures, and they were known as collective cultures was yes you're an important person and you're also part of a collective and we all work together or we all are gonna die but in an individualistic culture we teach people this is your life do what you want to do when you want to do it and and we buy into that so even when science says oops our egos and our short-term thinking go, well, yeah, the next generation will worry about that because I want that. I want, and then that's where the gluttony and the greed and the hoarding and the violence and the stealing and the lying, all of that comes in because it's about me. It's I want to do what I want to do. Do you think that the concept of going to Mars is a tool I guess I'm, this is inception here a little bit, but that, as a tool that's being used to just continue to tell people, just do whatever you want, wreck this place, because we'll just go to another planet. I mean... In the film Yaquana, yeah, that's exactly what the indigenous people say. Did you watch that part? I don't know if you no, watched I didn't that, get part. To that part. Yes, yeah. yeah they, the elders are going, we're right here on this mother. Yeah. I don't want to go 
out there, because then all we'll do is destroy that one. We need, we're living here, let's, let's protect and be guardians on this one. So at some level, I think human beings have always striven, strove, strived for something better or different. I get that. But I also think it can be, oops, we're screwing up this one, let's go find the next one. You know, that's what countries did, that's what people do. They wipe something out and they just move on to the next thing, leaving the mess behind them. Yeah. Oh, that throwaway mentality. So, so if anybody believes that and you want to tie in all this stuff, I just watched the Bob Lazar Area 51 documentary on Netflix. Great documentary. Bob Lazar is this guy that worked at Area 51 for a short period of time. Claims that while he was there, he was able to work on, uh, on an uh, anti-gravity generator device that they had from one of nine spacecraft hmm. that they were trying to figure out how to make it work. And um, It's an interesting documentary, whether you believe what he says or not. It's irrelevant. But... When asked, he's, somebody asks him, the, the documentarian asks him, he says, well, where did, where did we get these nine spacecraft? And he says, I don't know. They didn't cover that in the briefing, but I did hear <laughs> some, some allusion to that. At least one of them was recovered in an excavation. So they were doing a dig somewhere, and they found this thing. It had been there for God knows a million years, right? So if anybody that thinks that we're going to go to another planet, let's look back at that Bob Lazar commentary. There were nine spacecraft here. Only nine of them came here, all right? So <laughs> we're, we're not all going to go. If, if we wreck this place and we got to go to Mars or some other planet, yeah. there's only going to be a few, and it's going to be the Trumps of the world that are going to go make that journey. Yeah. You're going to have to have a lot of resources. Most of us are going to be left here looking at that. Yeah, trying to breathe. Yeah, as it takes off and yeah, uses the last bit of oxygen to launch itself out of the, the planet. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Nine That's of funny. them. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, so it's it's going back to to uh, to lore um, and the knowledge, the wisdom that these elders shared with you. Part of it also is the lore of um, I don't want to get this. I'll get it wrong, but the lore of, of, of the privilege to teach. Mm -hmm. I forget the title of it, but one of that that's sort of it, and, and that's what you've been given. You've told me a story about how initially there was um, some resistance to you being an outsider coming in and learning uh, the ways of the Lakota people, mm -hmm. uh, the people, to, um, uh, of learning their lore and then going out and sharing that. And there was some resistance initially. But then you were granted, in a way, you were granted that uh, mm -hmm. respect to say, okay, um, uh, you've, you've been um, granted the ability to, to, te to teach this going forward. How can people share this knowledge as they learn it? Um, what what tools are out there? There's there's this documentary people can learn from, but but what else is out there that will enable people to learn more and to uh, to pay it forward to teach others? I think probably I think any culture has its ancient wisdom, so you don't have to. I found it with. Native Americans and then others. But I think anybody could go back into their family history or their old grandpa or grandma or aunts or uncles if they're still around and ask them what are the stories of our people? How did we live for so long in Italy or France or, or 
Iraq or wherever? How did we do that? What, what made us exist? What's changed? Why has it changed? What have we forgotten? So I think that's one way to, to look back at one's heritage. I think to read is really important to read about ancient history, ancient studies, ancient cultures, and find out how they existed. The problem is that so many of them really were written by uninitiated white anthropologists that, that most cultures were oral cultures. They didn't do a lot of the writing stuff or the writings were destroyed. So you have to be discerning. So when I read books written by anthropologists, that's why I went to the people themselves and found out what's the real truth here, what's the, what's the rest of the story, you know, as they say. But the, the lore as it's appearing, um, I'm, I'm hoping to put it together in some form or fashion. I give speeches on it, and I'm trying to share it. And I believe there probably are other people, I don't know if they call it life lore, but they're sure talking about what do we need to do differently so we don't all die. I think all of us just need to examine our life and going back to that, am I creating or am I destroying with what I do today? Am I, what am I destroying besides just myself, but other people or other things? What could I do differently? What could I do better? Do I really need more of that? Do I need another thing? I don't know. I, I just think we need to be more mindful, examine our thinking and our behaviors. Our defaults are kind of bad right now. See, that's the thing. We default when we don't use this part of our brain. We go back to the midbrain where our defaults are, and those aren't always the wisest things. So we need to constantly go back to our forebrain and really think about, do I need another one? Do I need to, how many shirts do I need? How many t-shirts do I need? How many pair of shoes do I really need? How many, you know, everything is just, what am I destroying when I do that? Versus, well, let me use this up instead, or. So if you're looking at like ancient writings, I mean, the Bible, of course, is one of the most prevalent, at least in our society. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you look at the New Testament, but you take that, that's mostly in terms of of people and you sort of extend that out to the environment and you treat your environment you treat nature for lack of a better word mother earth with that same respect with that same do unto others type mentality mm -hmm. that the bible the new testament teaches you to treat other people with then you're kind of on the right path to falling into a lot of the same yeah a lot of the same teachings of indigenous people so in other words I mean, it's a 2,000-year-old text. Yeah. Some wisdom so, there. So, for example, um, one, of, one of the lore is, um, has to do with spending and being awake all night out in nature. That's one of the lore. So I would, I would say to any listener, my guess is that sometime this summer or maybe last winter, you stood outside for some reason, you looked up at the sky and saw the Milky Way, and you were like, wow, look at all the stars. I should do this more often. Or you lit a fire in your backyard to roast marshmallows on the 4th of July, and there were no phones and no TVs, and you were actually talking to one another around a fire, and you were like, wow, we should do this more often. And the answer is yes, yes. So in the Bible, Jesus said to the disciples, can't you stay up one night with me, mm. right? One of the lore is, 
stay up all night outside, sit by a tree all night long, don't go to sleep, preferably out in nature somewhere where there aren't cars and everything, and feel afraid for a moment about, oh my God, I'm in the dark in nature, and then go, wait a second, I'm part of nature, so I'm part of this. Enjoy the tree you're leaning against, enjoy the stars, listen to the no technology, and what you'll find is your worldview will change. So other cultures did this as part of life every year. They knew that they were going to spend from one to four nights alone out in nature. Now we call it a vision quest. The only vision that you get is remembering. You remember, wait, I'm not separate from nature. I am nature. And you just appreciate it more. If you fast during that time, if you don't eat or drink for the four days that you're out there, suddenly you come back and that glass of water you have is the best glass of water you've ever had in your life. And what happens is five days later, when you have a drink of water, you don't just guzzle it down, you go, wow, I'm really lucky to have this water. It changes your thinking. It makes you go back outside and look at the Milky Way more often to turn off your lights so that you can see the Milky Way. This, this idea of going out into nature, going out for one night, the, um, there's, there's a, a number of poems where people talk about not being able to see the stars anymore. What the indigenous people say is the stars can't see you anymore. That's a problem. When all of these beings want to see you as well, like the last time we talked about how many times have you said to your, as you saw a stone, gee, I got to pick up that stone. The indigenous way of thinking is the stone wanted to pick you up. It's so different. When we think we're the best, when we think we're the top of the totem pole, so to speak, then everything is about us. I want to pick up that stone. And the indigenous people, it's turned around. It's things want to be with us. The stars want to see us. The stone is saying to you, wow, you're pretty cool looking. I want to pick you up. I can't walk over, so I'm just going to put the thought into your mind, pick me up. It's such a different way of, of walking in the world. It's, it's such an incredibly different way. So when I, I used to be a long-distance runner, and I never used headphones and all of that, how can, how can people walk in nature when they're walking, looking at their phone, listening to music? They can't hear the voice saying, look at me, aren't I a beautiful flower? I'm a pretty cool looking tree, a stone saying, pick me up, because we're, we're just always filled with noise, we're filled with light, when so much occurs in the dark. So much occurs in the dark, that's really good. You know, I'll say to people, have you seen your heart lately? I mean, you know, when you do, you're dead probably, but everything occurs in the dark inside your body. You have night and day, winter and summer. Half of a tree is in the dark. You need the dark. We need the dark. We need to be in the dark to think. Native American sweat lodges were done on a sweat lodge that's dark. Churches were meant to be dark, not all lit up. You open the doors and you go into this darker place so that you can go inside of your own dark. You can do some introspective work. But when you're always busy, when you're always in the light, 
our, our sleep is disturbed by the amount of light and the amount of noise and seeing these blue screens in our face all of the time. It's like our optic nerve is always on, our ears are always on. Everybody has tinnitus because they, they're, we're bombarded with noise and light. Part of life lore is go into the dark. That's a life lore. Go into the dark. A life lore is emptying, where you periodically look at, oh, I regret that, or I love that, or you emote. But another life lore is being emptied. So these kids that I told you about in the beginning of our talk who go sit with a tree, what they'll find is they go to their tree after, say, a month or two months, and they'll take a nap by their tree. And they wake up with a new thought or a different feeling or they find themselves crying. What's happening is nature is emptying them. Nature is saying, you're so stressed, you're so tired, you're so anxious, let me take some of that from you. That's partly why indigenous peoples around the world go into nature, into the dark. How long did Jesus do that in the Bible? 40 days and 40 nights. He went out into the desert, made a circle around himself, boom. He was doing a vision quest. He was going into his own dark. The Buddha did the same thing. He was visited by, by the devil and all of that who tried to tempt him with greed and naked women. And Buddha just was closed his eyes, put his hand on the earth, and was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. So through time, all of our greatest teachers went into the dark, were emptied and emptied, spent time in nature, fasted, appreciated the lore of exchange. This lore, this life lore is in every culture through time. It's something we can all practice. It's not, it's not a diet plan. It's really things we can do that will help us and help all things because we will walk more gently when we see that everything is alive and really, really does care for us and wants to live. Everything wants to live. So why not do it together instead of at odds? So. That's a beautiful thought. Mm. The, uh, the most sacred Lakota prayer is mitakuye oyase, which means all are related. Everything is my relative. And they don't just mean people. They don't say everyone is my relative. All things. So this ancient, ancient, ancient prayer, um, that's what they try to remember, is that Lakota means the people. We're the people. Those are the trees. Those are the, we're not better than them. We're just simply the people's part. Hello. You know, we're not better. We're just one of everything here in nature. So, yeah. Anything else you'd like to uh, talk about today? All right, you know, I think that's pretty good. I think we've <laughs> taken people down a bizarre path. But, you know, the metaphor of um, we, can, we can get the rainbow back, just learn the life lore, be mindful, and the ripples will stop and the rainbow can return. That's what the elders say. There will be a tipping point, yes, but we haven't hit that yet. But don't think it's the next generation. It's going to occur in... I'm 70, and it could occur in my lifetime. It's definitely going to occur if I had children in my children's lifetime. And the grandchildren, that's what we should worry about most. Will they 
be in a bad dystopic film or will they have better than we have now? Create or destroy. That's, that's the message, I think. So. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate having you here today. Yes, thanks for asking. Well, that wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us on Radio Free New Hampshire.